Lou, welcome to the podcast, Simone. Thank you for having me. Uh, so just the first question, uh, you began with a degree in marketing and business administration uh, and quickly moved into an assistant production uh, role. How did your interest in VFX production lead you to working as a producer across various studios? Well, I, I was studying marketing and I was working um, part-time as a nanny for a, uh, an amazing woman. She was a single mother. She was a female director in TV commercials, oh. which was highly unusual at the time because it was the late 80s. Um, and I just found her life fascinating. And I started to shadow her in professionally and... Uh, I just watched this magic happen and I fell in love with the space. So basically uh, she would come up with uh, what what are called treatments. Um, uh, So a treatment is basically when you take an idea that the advertising agency has had a script, a concept, and you explain how you are going to bring it to life. And she would uh, then bring in the uh, other members of a, a team that she would assemble especially for this TV commercial, and that would be a cinematographer, um, a musician, there would be uh, costume, wardrobe, and all of these people, uh, locations, uh, props, you know, the whole thing. And all of these people would come together to visualise what this thing was going to be, and then you would turn up to this massive empty space, and there was nothing in there, and trucks would roll in, and it would be completely transformed, and... Um, cameras would come and lighting would come and grips Mm. would come and suddenly magic would happen. And then they'd all pack up the trucks and they'd go home. Uh, Well, before you went home, you'd have rat bears on the back of the truck. That was a thing back in the (laughs) 80s. Can't do it now. It's illegal. Um, And and then you would start the post-process, which was, you know, music and colour and editing. It was just this magical process. I was so in love with it. So I, um, through her, got a job in an advertising agency um, and that was great and it was where the concepts came. And Sorry, that was great. It was where the concepts were conceived but it was still one step away from the actual doing. Um, So then I moved to Sydney when I was about 22 and got a job with a company called self-made shade and they were doing um, mostly car commercials in those days and in those days car commercials were like the big thing that was where the money was Mm. and so I was doing those and a company called Animal Logic was doing the visual effects and back in the day when I was in Melbourne uh, editing was literally cutting and by that I mean you would have um, negative and you would splice it up with a blade and stick it together with tape and you would go into what was called a cutting room and it would oh, be... Like the actual film. The actual oh, film, wow. the negative. Those are the days. Yeah. I grew up in the old days, my friend. Yeah. And I'm, if you imagine this room with clotheslines all over it and pieces of negative hanging from it, and you had to be so good at your craft then because mm. here, if I want to edit something, I just... It's a keystroke. Yeah. Whereas in those days... Imagine wanting to trim a frame. You take the piece of negative, you say cut five frames off, you stick the bits back together. Every single frame, yeah. Well, not every frame. You take a string of it. So say I've got a a shot and it's one string of negative and I will say, "Mm, I want to chop five frames off. So I chop five frames off and then I've got this little bit and I stick that over there and I put this bit in and I'm like, you know what, I need to put another frame back in. 
then I have to cut that bit off the bit that I've discarded, oh don't get rid of it, <laughs> stick it back. You know, I guess my point is the craft back in those days, you had to be, you had to make decisions, you had to be judicious, you mm. couldn't just suck and say. Anyway, so off we go to um, to Sydney, working at Self Made Shade, Animal Logic, Visual Effects is starting, um, you know, there's 3D, there's tracking, there's um, there's uh, a machine called a Flame, which is a, a visual effects compositing software. Yep. And uh, we, we were doing a lot of our work through Animal Logic. Um, back in, not, it's, you know, Animal Logic, you probably know it. It's, a, it's one of it. the world's biggest um, visual effects companies. Mm. It was certainly the first and the largest in Australia until recently when the international companies have come across. But it, it was, this is before it was in Fox Studios. It was, it was back in the day. That director that you, were, that you mentioned at the start, is, was that, was he? Doing uh, mainly marketing commercials, or was All it more right? Yeah, um, it's I interesting to see how kind of directing and directors influence commercials. To see how it's not really an ad; it's it's a story. It's a story. It's yeah. narrative. Yeah, it's the, it's just a short story, and they, it, there is no difference other than the duration. Mm. There is no difference between um, doing a television commercial commercial and doing a film. It's just a film is on a larger scale, but I'm oh god, people would kill me for saying that. Uh, when I say that, I mean in terms of process. Yep. In terms of process, yep. there's a big difference between course, a TV commercial yeah. and a film. But it's still telling a story, um, and and that's that's what it's all about. No difference between um, whether you do a, a TV commercial or a, a brand piece or or a, a film. Um, or even a game to a certain extent. It's still a narrative, uh, a piece of narrative. Just, a di- I guess, a different final result. They, they want conversions, not... Correct. Right. They're doing it for money. It's, it's, it's a commercial film. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. A commercial small film. Um, uh, just the next question. So you've worked on projects like the Saturday Night Live opening title sequence, uh, the rebranding of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in uh, New York City. Uh, that's all correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, can you just quickly share any kind of intriguing, intriguing insights or stories from these international experiences and kind of how that uh, maybe was an exciting part of your career and kind of why students should be looking into doing uh, international opportunities? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, so let me tell you how I got there. Yeah. So I went on a trip to New York. I'd never been, but oh, I'd been when I was a kid. Um, I would have been oh, 20 maybe, don't remember, um, but I had, uh, I got on the plane, I went and stayed with my friends in Brooklyn, we caught the subway to Manhattan, I will never forget the moment of getting up out of the subway and being on Broadway and Canal and just going, oh my God, this is this city is an assault on your senses, mm. uh, it's amazing. And when, even that afternoon, I remember my friend, I don't know what they were doing, but I was standing there on Broadway looking up at this building and stunning and it had what looked like a creative um, studio at the top and I thought to myself you know what I really want to I, I want to work here so the next day I went to Kinko's which is like office works and the, in those days there was no phone there was no um, email mm. so I went back to her house I went to Kinko's printed out a resume faxed it because do you know what a fax is? <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> a fax is like a thing when it, because there's no email. It's the days before email. Is uh, when I was younger, there was such a thing as a telex. It's basically how you transmit um, a 
pick, uh, pick information to someone else via a phone line, visual information via a phone line. That's what a fax was. So I took this resume, I faxed it to um, about 10 studios. The next day, I got home to my friend's place and on the answer machine, do you know what an answer machine yes, is? Yes, I know what an answer <laughs> machine is. <laughs> uh, there were five messages to go to interviews. Wow. And then by the end of the next week, I had a job. And that was, it was just incredible. So, you know, it's if you want something, you can do it. So then... I moved over there. Um, the f- one of the first jobs I did was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And the thing with America is that, well, no, let's say New York, because I think New York is very different to America. Yep. Um, New York, you go there and everyone is direct and everyone is busy and everyone is purposeful and everyone is at the top of their game. So mm. I was a, a medium fish in a tiny pond and suddenly I became a tiny fish in a huge pond um so cbc we went uh, because again we do things properly and there were big budgets so we would all travel up to canada and uh there were a a creative director an executive producer and teams for each of the genres so if you do a rebrand for a network you have to think there's multiple genres so you've got the network identity then you've got the entertainment identity, then you've got news. And if you think of a news identity package, if you're branding news, you've got not only the logo at the front, but you have the lower thirds, you've got the graphics that you sit the um, results on and the NASDAQ stuff on and, you know, all of all of the backgrounds. And then you've got the weather graphics. And, you know, there's a bucket load mm. of pieces that go into this. Um, and then you've got the same for sport and the same for entertainment. So, you know, you've got these big groups that are travelling together doing this work. And you, the thing with New York is that, even though we're in Canada, but same, same, you live really well, you work really, really hard, really long hours, and you play hard as well. So yep. all of those, because of that, those people all became my friends and they were the ones that, that I hung out with there. That's um, So, you know, culturally... New York, different to the rest of America really, but is just, it is the top of its game and you need to pull yourself up to be seen. Right. Um, uh, the second thing with New York is that anything is possible. So two stories. One is um, the, you know, here, when before I left, if you wanted to lock down a street, which means block a street to put a camera, you need, it was a very subjective process. It was very difficult Whereas in New York, there's a system for it. You want to lock down Broadway, which is the main road in New York, to shoot a Macy's commercial, which is what I did. It's totally possible. You go to the mayor's office and you get a permit. Like, I was just, well, I couldn't believe it. I, I did it. I had a camera on a crane, locked down Broadway at peak hour, shooting a Macy's commercial. They're, they're like, used to it, almost. They're used to yeah. it. And what an iconic moment. Then same with Saturday Night Live. I'm walking, I have one of those out-of-body experiences. Oh, my God, I'm on the set of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you know, amazing. And then, funny story, that when I said to you earlier that um, I looked up at this creative studio, I ended up working there. That was the company I was working for when... I shot the Macy's commercial. So, you know, things that you want are possible if you go after them. Mm. Awesome. So just kind of keep on pursuing what you're interested in. and Keep pursuing what you're interested in. So is that something that you always wanted to do, work in New York as well? I didn't know I did until that day <laughs> I arrived in New York and just went, oh, my God, I want to live here. And then later I went and lived in London 
Um, in 2009-2010, I had young children at the time and I did the World Cup soccer bid for Qatar, the winning bid for right, that, wow. um, as, as a visual effects producer. Mm. And one of the um, parts of that was to shoot the footballers uh, this, uh, in Spain. So we had to fly over to Barcelona um, and fortunately, none of them were available on the same day. So we set up a studio. We'd go in for two hours a day, shoot these famous footballers, and the rest of the time, hang out, um, the makeup artists taking us out to bars and restaurants. You know, you, you, have, you meet these people, you have these experiences, mm-hmm. and you also, most importantly, get a global perspective. Right. Um, it's, really, it's really easy to become... Um, to just become so insular in your thinking. And when you work and live overseas, you get challenged, um, you get outside your comfort zone, but you learn you learn things. Like, for example, I learnt, I worked at the mill when I was doing the World Cup bid, and it's one of the biggest and most accomplished visual effects companies in the world. And they were huge, but they were able to put out craft, like the work was beautiful. And the ability to take such a big machine and put out such good work mm. is all about workflow and process. Yep. And I took that and brought that back to me when I started cutting it. Oh, sorry, I didn't start cutting it. When I got the job at Cutting Edge and I built that visual effects team from six to about 65 at, at its height. Wow. Um, by taking those, those learnings. So yep. global experience is really important. Awesome. And kind of moving in between the, so the immersive phase where you kind of got into augmented reality and virtual reality. What was the in-between part where, how did you kind of get into that kind of space? How did you go from your visual effects, your more traditional visual effects, traditional even though it's not (laughs) the film, individual film uh, frames, uh, to kind of where you're at today? Sure. Um, So I was, uh, it's actually an, um, so I was working, as I said, at Cutting Edge, um, uh, running the the Sydney studio, and I was hitting forty nine, and I realised that two things. One is I was working on Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge at the time, and I was actually working with that visual effects supervisor of um, of that film was the visual effects supervisor at Animal Logic back in my the beginning of my career. So I just had these moments where. Oh my God, this is, first of all, I'm aging out and I want to control my exit from the industry. I don't want somebody to control me, my exit. And second of all, this is the culmination. Like I'm working on this great film with this great director and this great crew and this is like, this is magic. Okay, what's next? So uh, I left that role and I went doing motor shows for a year around the world, mm. uh, doing big, large format films and, and um, motor show uh, new product reveals. And while I was there, there was a, a team with us um, that were doing virtual reality. And I put the headset on and I just went, oh, my God. All this work that I've done, my whole world has been world building, visual effects world building, that you put on a 2D screen and you passively watch. But now I can actually be in that world and I can interact with that world. And I just went, oh, game changer. Um, So suddenly I could say, okay, technology is the future, but then I put on the Microsoft HoloLens 
and I was seeing a digital layer over my view of the real world. And that's when I knew that that, tran- that was transformative technology. So, Did you have any, uh, side note, did you ever have any experience with, I know in visual effects they have, I think only recently, the volumetric... Yeah, there was, there was not a thing. In my thing. day, so five years, uh, six years ago, we started our company six years ago right. next week. And six years ago, visual effects was visual effects. Yep. Games were games. Yep. Over the last six years, we've seen um, Unity. Dwesha actually just developed, le- I think it was only yesterday, that they put out a tool set for Unity. Um, obviously, um, uh, the... Unreal Engine has been transforming the space and merging yeah. visual effects and uh, and and game technology for a while. So uh, that's been something that's just happened over the last six years. So it, when I started my journey in tech, traditional visual effects and games were very different, but those technologies are so merged now that even uh, you've seen Netflix are now um, they say that they they lose viewers not to competing streaming services but to games and they've um start now started launching their idea of transmedia storytelling so it's and obviously metaverse while metaverse is unlikely to actually survive as a word maybe it will maybe it won't the concept of the metaverse will 100 percent um be the future and the way we engage so kind of that Blending of, am I blending Very of much. games and media? I would say right. you know it's it's interactive entertainment. Yep. Is we've we've reached the era of era of entertainment and um and, sorry, we've reached an era of interactive entertainment and that is for studios like ours that take visual effects craft and combine it with interactive technology. You know it's game changing. Mm, that's right. Um, awesome. So just next question. Uh, obviously, we've seen that augmented reality and virtual reality has increasingly grown as a campaign, things that uh, brands can use as campaigns to kind of increase their consumer base and promote their product. Is that something that is that something that is going to stay kind of on the marketing manager's uh, toolbox? I would say that absolutely immersive technology is the future. Um, if you look at it from a marketing perspective... Um, with a brand, they can engage and connect with their consumers. And that's the holy grail for marketers. Um, So if I give you some stats here, um, this is from a Mediafly US uh, research study last year. Customer Companies that leveraged interactive content saw 94% higher increase in content views than traditional static content. And customers spend an average of 13 minutes viewing interactive content assets, but only eight and a half minutes viewing static content. So it's the engagement and connection with a brand. That's why we focus so much on immersive technology. We're establishing a relationship with the brand and the consumer. Uh, And next, from my own experience working in an augmented reality agency, I noticed that uh, they were always doing experiences for really large brands. So Adidas, Pepsi, Nike, Rebel, uh, brands like that. Is Do you think that these type of technologies will ever filter down to your local pizza restaurant, uh, kind of smaller businesses, or do you think it's something that only really large brands can afford? It's not about – it's actually not about affording it. Like we have a platform at Zebra that is 
you can spin up an AR campaign really quickly and really cheaply. But let's look at your example of pizza or, or menu AR. Uh, with technology, we like, particularly at Zebra, to make sure that technology is purposeful. And I don't think that AR menu items are purposeful for two reasons. One is augmented reality food takes a lot to really look good. You right. can't just create it as a 3D asset. You have to do photogrammetry, which means you have to take a bunch of pictures of it and then you have to create a point cloud and you've got to then project the photo back onto it to make it look edible. We've done it for fast food companies in, in the UK. It was very successful, but that's one way. I, d- I just don't. So it's more it's of a not, fad. I almost. just don't think it's purposeful because right. how you can't scale that. You can't. Oh, I'm. I've just got a batch of fresh fish in from the market. Yeah. I can't put that on the menu, so no one's going to order it because they're only going to order the items that I already built last year in in AR. I don't think it's purposeful. A and B. I think when you are at a restaurant, you should not have your phone or any technology out. You should be interacting with each other. Yeah, so true. I think it absolutely defeats the purpose of the technology. Having said that, there are so many applications for augmented reality um, at, that are 100% purposeful. You know, so if I'm a, if I'm a uh, not a brand, if I'm a small customer selling white goods, um, it's really purposeful so that clients can be able to see, A, what does it look like? B, can I open and see if it has all the drawers I want? C, I really want to feel the scale. I don't understand when I look at an image on a website. I can't understand how big it is. I, I want to see it in scale. And then I want to see if it actually fits in my kitchen. Same with furniture. Um, same with try-on accessories. Eventually, clothing, and clothing will be a big one when it doesn't work at the moment. To, for clothing to... In augmented reality clothing at the moment to try it on, it just scales and, and scaling isn't right. You've got to see the way it fits over your body. Yep. When we when we achieve that and we're close with a, a um, technology called Marvelous Creations, we will be able to try on clothes. And what that will do is actually have a very important role in reducing the amount of waste from fashion because so much product that you buy online goes back and put into the landfill because it doesn't fit you. So mm. if you see actually what it looks like on you before you purchase it, you're going to know one, you know, the only thing then to decide when you get it is, oh, is do I like the fabric or is the colour not as I thought? So um, it, it has really important roles. Um, AR scavenger hunts are really cost-effective um, right. and really good to engage. Could you please just give us a... Rundown of what an AR scavenger hunt is. Sure. So, um, for example, uh, we did it a few years ago for Westfield. Yeah. And um, in, particular, in 2020, when we were in the middle of COVID, and people would run around with their mobile phone, um, uh, revealing a little reindeer and in augmented reality. And this life-like reindeer would... We did, I think we did nine reindeer and they'd each got themselves into a little sticky situation. Their feet had got stuck with candy cane or they'd got stuck in a box. And through augmented reality, you scan it, you um, see this reindeer, you release it and out out it comes. So it's cute for kids. It's a fun thing. But it also works for corporate because if you're doing an event, um, we've done it for um, several companies in the US, if they're doing an event and they want to engage people, um, they will do, again, you run around the universe finding um, little augmented reality by the universe. I mean, you run around a conference centre finding augmented reality cookies and it will give you information 
about the brand and you're engaging with the brand. And again, kind of that story as well. Awesome. Uh, And also, could you please provide us with kind of a bit more of a, uh, about Zebra as well? Sure. Kind of what Zebra is and what Zebra does for people who might be interested. Sure. We're a creative technology company. We do anything that's immersive, interactive and real time. So that's anything from augmented reality, virtual reality, metaverse, to um, live events that have an interactive component such as Vivid or such as big conferences that we've done overseas. Um, We also uh, work on games, so mobile games and, um, and desktop games. So anything that is interactive, real time and immersive, our point of difference is that myself and one of my co-founders comes from pure visual effects. He used to work on the Marvel movies. And the other two, one of them is a a UX director, comes from AAA Games, and the other one is a pure programmer. So we're able to blend the visual effects and the photo real film level quality visuals with technology. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm also really interested in kind of that v- uh, VFX, kind of that world as well. And it's interesting that, and it also logical, it makes sense that those two worlds would combine to, to improve. Correct. And it's only just happening now. When we started, most of this work was either done by a tech-based team, in which case their art was rubbish, or an art-based team, in which case their tech was rubbish. Right. But now, not only we, but globally... Um, with all of these tools that are coming out, particularly with um, with UE5 leading the way, these tools are democratising the ability for more people to build worlds. And, and that's one of the things about the metaverse when it becomes a thing. You know, everyone can become a world builder and that's what the future becomes. That's right. Uh, kind of when you say world builder, we, we've kind of seen the development of... Meta recently, Facebook changed their name to Meta, uh, Apple's released their new Apple Vision, uh, their headset, uh, Microsoft are releasing their HoloLens and all of their updated uh, kind of virtual reality products. Uh, how do you think that these types of things will affect the, the marketing space with immersive kind of XR uh, products? Do you think that they'll ever, do you think that it will ever really develop to a point where people will be looking at marketing campaigns through AR glasses or kind of those type of hardware products or do you think that they're completely separate? Oh, I think not only will you be viewing marketing content, you'll be viewing all of you, you will consume all of your digital content through wearable technology in the future. Um, the game changer for that was the release of the, um, the Apple Vision Pro. The thing with the Apple product versus the meta product is the Apple product was shown deliberately by Dim Cook as a purposeful tool and that's where it's really important because technology, like I don't believe that everyone is going to be living in the universe of Mm. horizon worlds without legs and in a cartoon (laughs) world. That's that's not what the metaverse is, that's not what the future is. Mm. But Tim Cook's vision is absolutely right on. It is purposeful technology. And this is the way we are all going to consume our in, in work, in play, and in general day-to-day life. Um, yeah, the, and there's a million examples. Like even just me walking here from the, the parking centre earlier, I'm on my phone wayfinding 
um, running into people, almost got myself killed. Whereas in the future, I will have my glasses like this and I'll just have a heads-up display showing me where to go. Mm. That That's one small example. You know, I could give you a million examples of why this technology is purposeful in the future. But the version that they've just released is obviously just for... Um, it's a start. It's for... It's really for hardcore early adopters and for devs to figure out how we work on the space because it has a battery life of two hours. It's very cumbersome. It's tethered. It's not... But this is product zero. Mm. Five iteration, iterations later and there will be... The prices will come down. There'll be Android competitors and it will be adopted at scale. There is absolutely no doubt. Do you, I know I'm sure everyone has a different opinion, but do you have any idea of the, a timeline? For, for, no. Not a clue. I'll tell yeah. you what. I'll tell you what. Ten years' time, I yeah. guarantee these glasses that I'm wearing right now will indeed um, be uh, XR glasses. Heck, yep. Um, and, and that, you know, and the brilliance of that is that I can be as immersive or as present as I want to. Awesome. Uh, so we're coming towards the end. Just two more questions left. Uh, the first is kind of looking at a different technology, artificial intelligence. Uh, so all students all know about artificial intelligence. Some students are worried that it's going to take their entry-level job out of the picture. Some students are, are using it to, to... I might have to cut this out, but some students are using it to write their essays for them. <laughs> um, how, how has AI, ChatGPT, how do you think it's going to change... Uh, the workflow for your for, for Zebra, but also just generally, how do you think it's going to change people's workflows to to be faster? And do you think it's going to change also the job, how how people's jobs are structured? Almost, I'm sure they will. But artificial intelligence, you know, like any technology that comes in, artificial intelligence is a tool at the end of the day, and it's what we do with it that is important. Um, a hammer can be used to build a house and a hammer can be used to kill someone. Artificial intelligence, likely the same. Mm. Um, be careful, though, kids, about using it as a, um, as a tool to write essays because uh, it ab- hallucinates and creates false uh, re- if references. So if you ask it to give you... If you give it a topic and say, please provide references, click on those links and sometimes they will be... Um, Personal experience. Not from me. This was actually from a very famous author, James Bradley, a friend of mine. He told me and he showed me and I'm like, oh, my God. But for us, we do it. Um, We use it for a tool. So we use it in a few ways. We use it as pair programming. So pair programming means when you are writing code, often before you deploy code, you need somebody to check your code to make sure that it works, to make sure that it's clean. Um, that takes means then I've got two programmers working on the one um, the the one piece of code. If we use ChatGPT, which we do to now um, to code check, that means that um, my guys are more productive. So we yep. use it in that way. We also use it to we use Midjourney and Dali to develop imagery for pitch decks and concept art. We don't use it in production. Yep. Um, I use it for for tools that I will cross-reference. If I'm trying to do a talk or something, I might. I will definitely use my own resources. I will definitely use my own thinking and my own knowledge. But occasionally I will cross-check with ChatGPT, but I will never use 
um, the string that comes out because remember, uh, artificial intelligence is basically based on patterns of words. It doesn't understand what it's saying. It doesn't necessarily make sense all the time. Yep. It basically takes from a database and picks uh, and, and picks up patterns, and that's the way it spews out its results. Awesome. So it's more of a secondary line of creativity? At the moment. Almost. But um, if we look at it, uh, no one, no one human can read an X-ray like artificial intelligence can. Mm. So I suspect that we will see... In industries such as medicine, in industry, well, it's going to affect every industry, absolutely every industry. Um, and I think it, it's transformative and I think it's mostly good, although obviously there are concerns and it needs to be regulated. Um, but at the end of the day, it is another tool and there will be whole jobs created based on being able to tame and program and request information from that tool. Awesome. Uh, and the final question. So the university integrates uh, nine graduate qualities within their learning outcomes. Uh, in your opinion, which two qualities do you consider the most important for a successful career in marketing uh, and why? How can students work on developing these qualities to advance in their own professional journey? Uh, good question. So firstly, despite studying marketing, I've been out of the space for so long that I would not call myself a marketing expert. However, the two the, and all of those qualities are equally important, but I'll choose two that probably most relate to me. The first is critical thinking and problem solving. Uh, the one thing that we can always count on is, is problems. Um, they're always there to solve. Um, and I think being able to have critical thinking and problem solving skills encourage us to question assumptions and evaluate evidence make informed decisions, adapt to changing circumstances, promote effective communication and potentially lead to better judgment and reasoning. Right. Um, the second one, probably the most important, the um, integrated professional ethical and personal identity. Your values are the most important thing. In my career, I've been mostly, to be honest, a bull in a china shop. Um, my kids and my staff will tell you that. It's only been in the last 10 years that I have understood that people are the most important thing. If you find successful people, they will be a people person. Yep. Um, I've always had the values, and values are so important. I've always had three values, and they're the same values that we attribute to our business, and they are innovation, authenticity and delivery. They're my three values. Um, in, e in terms of EQ, I think that's the most important skill you can have. Um, Scott Galloway, who... Do you know Scott Galloway? Yeah, I do, actually. He's the NYU professor, isn't he? Correct. Yeah. And he runs the Pivot podcast. He's my absolute idol. Um, if only he were listening. Um, he <laughs> Hello, says, Scott. <laughs> he says, how do you spot an idiot? Look for the person who's cruel. The kindest person in the room is often the smartest. And I think that is excellent advice. Yep. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Simone. Thank uh, you it's for been having me. Very, very uh, awesome advice I think that you've given everyone. Uh, and hope, hopefully you can come on again uh, in, in one of the next podcasts. Happy to. Thank you for having me. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, Simone. Thank you for having me. Uh, so just the first question, uh, you began with a degree in marketing and business administration uh, and quickly moved into an assistant production 
uh, role. How did your interest in VFX production lead you to working as a producer across various studios? Well, I, I was studying marketing and I was working um, part-time as a nanny for a, uh, an amazing woman. She was a single mother. She was a female director in TV commercials, oh. which was highly unusual at the time because it was the late 80s. Um, and I just found her life fascinating. And I started to shadow her in professionally and... Uh, I just watched this magic happen and I fell in love with the space. So basically uh, she would come up with uh, what what are called treatments. Um, uh, So a treatment is basically when you take an idea that the advertising agency has had a script, a concept, and you explain how you are going to bring it to life. And she would uh, then bring in the uh, other members of a, a team that she would assemble especially for this TV commercial, and that would be a cinematographer, um, a musician, there would be a costume, wardrobe, and all of these people, uh, locations, uh, props, you know, the whole thing. And all of these people would come together to visualise what this thing was going to be, and then you would turn up to this massive empty space, and there was nothing in there, and trucks would roll in, and it would be completely transformed, and... Um, cameras would come and lighting would come and grips mm. would come and suddenly magic would happen. And then they'd all pack up the trucks and they'd go home. Uh, well, before you went home, you'd have rat bears on the back of the truck. That was a thing back in the 80s. <laughs> Can't do it now. It's illegal. Um, and, uh, this, and then you would start the post-process, which was, you know, music and colour and editing. It was just this magical process. I was so in love with it. So I, um, through her, got a job in an advertising agency um, and that was great and it was where the concepts came and, sorry, that was great. It was where the concepts were conceived but it was still one step away from the actual doing. Um, So then I moved to Sydney when I was about 22 and got a job with a company called Self Made Shade. And they were doing um, mostly car commercials in those days. And in those days, car commercials were like the big thing. That was where the money was. Mm. And so I was doing those. And a company called Animal Logic was doing the visual effects. And back in the day when I was in Melbourne, uh, editing was literally cutting. And by that I mean you would have um, negative and you would splice it up with a blade and stick it together with tape and you would go into what was called a cutting room and it would oh, be... Oh, like the actual film? The actual oh, film, wow. <laughs> the Those are the days. Yeah. I grew up in the old days, my friend. Yeah. And I'm, if you imagine this room with clotheslines all over it and pieces of negative hanging from it, and you had to be so good at your craft then because mm. here, if I want to edit something, I just... It's a keystroke. Yeah. Whereas in those days... Imagine wanting to trim a frame. You take the piece of negative, you say cut five frames off, you stick the bits back together. You every single frame, it. yeah. Well, not every frame. You take a string of it. So say I've got a, a shot and it's one string of negative and I will say, mm, I want to chop five frames off. So I chop five frames off and then I've got this little bit and I stick that over there and I put this bit in and I'm like, you know what, I need to put another frame back in. 
then I have to cut that bit off the bit that I've discarded, oh don't get rid of it, <laughs> stick it back. You know, I guess my point is the craft back in those days, you had to be, you had to make decisions, you had to be judicious, you mm. couldn't just suck and say. Anyway, so off we go to um, to Sydney, working at Self Made Shade, Animal Logic, Visual Effects is starting, um, you know, there's 3D, there's tracking, there's um, there's uh, machine called a flame which is a, a visual effects compositing software yep. and uh, we we were doing a lot of our work through animal logic um back in not it's you know animal logic you probably know it it's a it's one of, of the world's biggest um visual effects companies mm. it was certainly the first and the largest in australia until recently when the international companies have come across but it it was. This is before it was in Fox Studios. It was. It was back in the day. That director that you were that you Nigel mentioned at Abbott. the start is was that was he he doing uh, mainly marketing commercials or was More it more right? Yeah, um, it's I, interesting I to see how kind of directing and directors influence commercials to see how it's not really an ad. It's it's a story. It's a story. It's yeah. narrative. Yeah. It's, the, it's just a short story. And they, it, there is no difference other than the duration. Mm. There is no difference between um, doing a television commercial, commercial and doing a film. It's just a film is on a larger scale. But I'm – oh, God, people would kill me for saying that. Uh, when I say that, I mean in terms of process, yeah. in terms of process. Yeah. There's a big difference between course, a TV commercial yeah. and a film. But it's still telling a story um, – and and that's that's what it's all about. No difference between um, whether you do a, a TV commercial or a, a brand piece or or a, a film um, or even a game to a certain extent. It's still a narrative, uh, a piece of narrative. Just a di- I guess a different final result. They they want conversions, not correct. Right. They're doing it for money. It's 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 a commercial film. Yeah, <laughs> a, a commercial small film. Um, uh, just the next question. So you've worked on projects like the Saturday Night Live opening title sequence, uh, the rebranding of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in uh, New York City. Uh, that's all correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, can you just quickly share any kind of intriguing, intriguing insights or stories from these international experiences and kind of how that uh, maybe was an exciting part of your career and kind of why students should be looking into doing uh, international opportunities? Oh, Absolutely. Um, uh, so let me tell you how I got there. Yep. So I went on a trip to New York. I'd never been, but oh, I'd been when I was a kid. Um, I would have been twenty six, maybe. Don't remember. Um, but I had. Uh, I got on the plane. I went and stayed with my friends in Brooklyn. We caught the subway to Manhattan. I will never forget the moment of getting up out of the subway and being on Broadway and Canal and just going, "Oh my God, this is this city is an." In- assault on your senses mm. uh, it's amazing and when even that afternoon I remember my friend I don't know what they were doing but I was standing there on Broadway looking up at this building and it was stunning and it had what looked like a creative um, studio at the top and I thought to myself you know what I really want to I, I want to work here so the next day I went to Kinko's which is like office works and the, in those days there was no phone there was no um, email. Mm. So I went back to her house. I went to Kinko's, printed out a resume, faxed it because do you know what a fax is? <laughs> I've heard of it. <laughs> a fax is like a thing when it, because there's no email. It's the days before email. Is uh, when I was younger, there was such a thing as a telex. It's basically how you transmit um, a 
pick, uh, pick information to someone else via a phone line, visual information via a phone line. That's what a fax was. So I took this resume, I faxed it to um, about 10 studios. The next day, I got home to my friend's place and on the answer machine, do you know what an answer machine yes, is? Yes, I know what an answer <laughs> machine is. <laughs> uh, there were five messages to go to interviews. Wow. And then by the end of the next week, I had a job. And that was, it was just incredible. So, you know, it's if you want something, you can do it. So then I moved over there. Um, the f- one of the first jobs I did was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And the thing with America is that, well, no, let's say New York, because I think New York is very different to America. Yep. Um, New York, you go there and everyone is direct and everyone is busy and everyone is purposeful and everyone is at the top of their game. So mm. I was a, a medium fish in a tiny pond and suddenly I became a tiny fish in a huge pond. Um, so CBC, we went, uh, because again, we do things properly and there were big budgets, so we would all travel up to Canada and uh, there were a, a creative director, an executive producer and teams for each of the genres. So if you do a rebrand for a network, you have to think there's multiple genres. So you've got the network identity then you've got the entertainment identity, then you've got news. And if you think of a news identity package, if you're branding news, you've got not only the logo at the front, but you have the lower thirds, you've got the graphics that you sit the um, results on and the NASDAQ stuff on and, you know, all of all of the backgrounds. And then you've got the weather graphics. And, you know, there's a bucket load mm. of pieces that go into this. Um, and then you've got the same for sport and the same for entertainment. So, you know, you've got these big groups that are travelling together doing this work. And you, the thing with New York is that, even though we're in Canada, but same, same, you live really well, you work really, really hard, really long hours, and you play hard as well. So yep. all of those, because of that, those people all became my friends and they were the ones that, that I hung out with there. That's um, So, you know, culturally... New York, different to the rest of America really, but is just, it is the top of its game and you need to pull yourself up to be seen. Right. Um, uh, the second thing with New York is that anything is possible. So two stories. One is um, the, the, you know, here, when before I left, if you wanted to lock down a street, which means block a street to put a camera, you need, it was a very subjective process. It was very difficult Whereas in New York, there's a system for it. You want to lock down Broadway, which is the main road in New York, to shoot a Macy's commercial, which is what I did, it's totally possible. You go to the mayor's office and you get a permit. Like, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I I did it. I had a camera on a crane, locked down Broadway at peak hour, shooting a Macy's commercial. They're used to it, almost. They're used to it. And what an iconic moment. Then same with Saturday Night Live. I'm walking, I have one of those out-of-body experiences. Oh, my God, I'm on the set of Saturday Night Live. (laughs) You know, amazing. And then, funny story, that when I said to you earlier that um, I looked up at this creative studio, I ended up working there. That was the company I was working for when... I shot the Macy's commercial. So, you know, things that you want are possible if you go after them. Mm. Awesome. So just kind of keep on pursuing what you're interested in. and Keep pursuing what you're interested in. So is that something that you always wanted to do, work in New York as well? I didn't know I did until (laughs) that day I arrived in New York and just went, oh, my God, I want to live here. And then later I went and lived in London 
um, in 2009-2010, I had young children at the time and I did the World Cup soccer bid for Qatar, the winning bid for right, that, wow. um, as, as a visual effects producer. Mm. And one of the um, parts of that was to shoot the footballers uh, this, uh, in Spain. So we had to fly over to Barcelona um, and fortunately, none of them were available on the same day. So we set up a studio. We'd go in for two hours a day, shoot these famous footballers, and the rest of the time, hang out. Um, the makeup artists taking us out to bars and restaurants. You know, you you have you meet these people. You have these experiences, mm-hmm. and you also, most importantly, get a global perspective. Right. Um, it's really it's really easy to become. Um, to just become so insular in your thinking. And when you work and live overseas, you get challenged, um, you get outside your comfort zone, but you learn you learn things. Like, for example, I learnt, I worked at the mill when I was doing the World Cup bid, and it's one of the biggest and most accomplished visual effects companies in the world. And they were huge, but they were able to put out craft, like the work was beautiful. And the ability to take such a big machine and put out such good work mm. is all about workflow and process. Yep. And I took that and brought that back to me when I started Cutting Edge. Oh, sorry, I didn't start Cutting Edge. When I got the job at Cutting Edge and I built that visual effects team from six to about 65 at, at its height. Wow. Um, by taking those, those learnings. So yeah. global experience is really important. Awesome. And kind of moving in between the, so the immersive phase where you kind of got into augmented reality and virtual reality what was the in-between part where how did you kind of get into that kind of space where how did you go from your visual effects your more traditional visual effects traditional even though it's not (laughs) the film individual film uh frames uh to kind of where you're at today sure um so i was uh, it's actually an um so I was working, as I said, at Cutting Edge, um, uh, running the the Sydney studio, and I was hitting 49, and I realised that two things. One is I was working on Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge at the time, and I was actually working with that visual effects supervisor of, um, of that film was the visual effects supervisor at Animal Logic back in my the beginning of my career. So I just had these moments where... Oh, my God, this is... First of all, I'm ageing out and I want to control my exit from the industry. I don't want somebody to control me, my exit. And second of all, this is the culmination. Like, I'm working on this great film with this great director and this great crew and this is, like, this is magic. Okay, what's next? So uh, I left that role and I went doing motor shows for a year around the world, mm. uh, doing big, large format films and and um, motor show uh, new product reveals. And while I was there, there was a, a team with us um, that were doing virtual reality. And I put the headset on and I just went, oh, my God. All this work that I've done, my whole world has been world building, visual effects world building, that you put on a 2D screen and you passively watch. But now I can actually be in that world and I can interact with that world. And I just went, oh, game changer. Um, so suddenly I could say, okay, technology is the future, but then I put on the Microsoft HoloLens 
and I was seeing a digital layer over my view of the real world. And that's when I knew that that, tran- that was transformative technology. So, Did you have any, uh, side note, did you ever have any experience with, I know in visual effects they have, I think only recently, the volumetric... Yeah, there was, there was not a thing. In my thing. day, so five years, uh, six years ago, we started our company six years ago right. next week. And six years ago, visual effects was visual effects. Yep. Games were games. Yep. Over the last six years, we've seen um, Unity. Dwesha actually just developed, le- I think it was only yesterday, that they put out a tool set for Unity. Um, obviously, um, uh, the... Unreal Engine has been transforming the space and merging yeah. visual effects and uh, and and game technology for a while. So uh, that's been something that's just happened over the last six years. So it, when I started my journey in tech, traditional visual effects and games were very different, but those technologies are so merged now that even uh, you've seen Netflix are now um, they say that they they lose viewers not to competing streaming services but to games wow. and they've um, start now started launching their idea of transmedia storytelling so it's and the, obviously metaverse while metaverse is unlikely to actually survive as a word maybe it will maybe it won't the concept of a metaverse will 100% um, be the future in the way we engage so kind of content. a Blending of, am I blending Very of much. games and media? I would say right. you know it's it's interactive entertainment. Yep. Is we've we've reached the era of era of entertainment and um and, sorry, we've reached an era of interactive entertainment and that is for studios like ours that take visual effects craft and combine it with interactive technology. You know it's game changing. Mm, that's right. Um, awesome. So just next question. Uh, obviously, we've seen that augmented reality and virtual reality has increasingly grown as a campaign, things that uh, brands can use as campaigns to kind of increase their consumer base and promote their product. Is that something that is that something that is going to stay kind of on the marketing manager's uh, toolbox? I would say that absolutely immersive technology is the future. Um, if you look at it from a marketing perspective... Um, with a brand, they can engage and connect with their consumers. And that's the holy grail for marketers. Um, so if I give you some stats here, um, this is from a Mediafly US uh, research study last year. Customer Companies that leveraged interactive content saw 94% higher increase in content views than traditional static content. And customers spend an average of 13 minutes viewing interactive content assets, but only eight and a half minutes viewing static content. So it's the engagement and connection with a brand. That's why we focus so much on immersive technology. We're establishing a relationship with the brand and the consumer. Uh, And next, from my own experience working in an augmented reality agency, I noticed that uh, they were always doing experiences for really large brands. So Adidas, Pepsi, Nike, Rebel, uh, brands like that. Is Do you think that these type of technologies will ever filter down to your local pizza restaurant, uh, kind of smaller businesses, or do you think it's something that only really large brands can afford? It's not about – it's actually not about affording it. Like we have a platform at Zebra that is 
you can spin up an AR campaign really quickly and really cheaply. But let's look at your example of pizza or, or menu AR. Uh, with technology, we like, particularly at Zebra, to make sure that technology is purposeful. And I don't think that AR menu items are purposeful for two reasons. One is augmented reality food takes a lot to really look good. You right. can't just create it as a 3D asset. You have to do photogrammetry, which means you have to take a bunch of pictures of it and then you have to create a point cloud and you've got to then project the photo back onto it to make it look edible. We've done it for fast food companies in, in the UK. It was very successful, but that's one way. I, d- I just don't... So it's more it's of a not, fad. I just almost. don't think it's purposeful because right. how you can't scale that. You can't... Oh, I'm, I've just got a batch of fresh fish in from the market. Yeah. I can't put that on the menu. So no one's going to order it because they're only going to order the items that I already built last year in, in AR. I don't think it's purposeful, A. And B, I think when you are at a restaurant, you should not have your phone or any technology out. You should be interacting with each other. Yeah, so true. I think it absolutely defeats the purpose of the technology. Having said that, there are so many applications for augmented reality um, at, that are a hundred percent purposeful, you know. So if I'm a if I'm a uh, not a brand, if I'm a small customer selling white goods, um, it's really purposeful so that clients can be able to see a what does it look like. B can I open and see if it has all the drawers I want. C I really want to feel the scale. I don't understand when I look at an image on a website. I can't understand how big it is. I, I want to see it in scale, and then I want to see if it actually fits in my kitchen. Same with furniture. Um, same with try on accessories. Eventually. Clothing and clothing will be a big one when it doesn't work at the moment to, for clothing to in augmented reality clothing at the moment to try it on it just scales and and scaling isn't right you've got to see the way it fits over your body yeah when we when we achieve that and we're close with a, a um, technology called marvelous creations we will be able to try on clothes and what that will do is actually have a very important role in reducing the amount of waste from fashion because so much product that you buy online goes back and put into the landfill because it doesn't fit you. So Mm. if you see actually what it looks like on you before you purchase it, you're going to know one, you know, the only thing then to decide when you get it is, oh, is do I like the fabric or is the colour not as I thought? So um, it it has really important roles. Um, AR scavenger hunts are really cost-effective and really good to engage. Could you please just give us a rundown of what an AR scavenger hunt is? Sure. So, um, for example, uh, we did it a few years ago for Westfield and um, in in 2020 when we were in the middle of COVID and people would run around with their mobile phone um, uh, revealing a little reindeer and in augmented reality, and this life-like reindeer would, we did, I think we did nine reindeer, and they'd each got themselves into a little sticky situation. Their feet had got stuck with candy cane, or they'd got stuck in a box. And through augmented reality, you scan it, you um, see this reindeer, you release it, and out of out it comes. So it's cute for kids. It's a fun thing, but it also works for corporate. Because if you're doing an event, um, we've done it for um, several companies in the US, if they're doing an event and they want to engage people, um, they will do, again, you run around the universe finding um, little augmented reality by the universe. I mean, you run around a conference centre finding augmented reality cookies and it will give you information 
about the brand and you're engaging with the brand. And again, kind of that story as well. Awesome. Uh, And also, could you please provide us with kind of a bit more of a, uh, about Zebra as well? Sure. Kind of what Zebra is and what Zebra does for people who might be interested. Sure. We're a creative technology company. We do anything that's immersive, interactive and real time. So that's anything from augmented reality, virtual reality, metaverse to um, live events that have an interactive component such as Vivid or such as big conferences that we've done overseas. Um, We also uh, work on games, so mobile games and, um, and desktop games. So anything that is interactive, real-time and immersive, our point of difference is that myself and one of my co-founders comes from pure visual effects. He used to work on the Marvel movies. And the other two, one of them is a uh, UX director, comes from AAA Games, and the other one is a pure programmer. So we're able to blend the visual effects and the photoreal film-level quality visuals with technology. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm also really interested in kind of that v- uh, VFX, kind of that world as well. And it's interesting that, and it also logical, it makes sense that those two worlds would combine to, to improve. Correct. And it's only just happening now. When we started, most of this work was either done by a tech-based team, in which case their art was rubbish, or an art-based team, in which case their tech was rubbish. Right. But now, not only we, but globally... Um, with all of these tools that are coming out, particularly with um, with UE5 leading the way, these tools are democratising the ability for more people to build worlds. And, and that's one of the things about the metaverse when it becomes a thing. You know, everyone can become a world builder and that's what the future becomes. That's right. Uh, kind of when you say world builder, we, we've kind of seen the development of... Meta recently, Facebook changed their name to Meta, uh, Apple's released their new Apple Vision, uh, their headset, uh, Microsoft are releasing their HoloLens and all of their updated uh, kind of virtual reality products. Uh, how do you think that these types of things will affect the, the marketing space with immersive kind of XR uh, products? Do you think that they'll ever, do you think that it will ever really develop to a point where people will be looking at marketing campaigns through AR glasses or kind of those type of hardware products or do you think that they're completely separate? Oh, I think not only will you be viewing marketing content, you'll be viewing all of you, you will consume all of your digital content through wearable technology in the future. Um, the game changer for that was the release of the, um, the Apple Vision Pro. The thing with the Apple product versus the meta product is the Apple product was shown deliberately by Dim Cook as a purposeful tool and that's where it's really important because technology, like I don't believe that everyone is going to be living in the universe of Mm. horizon worlds without legs and in a cartoon (laughs) world. That's that's not what the metaverse is, that's not what the future is. Mm. But Tim Cook's vision is absolutely right on. It is purposeful technology. And this is the way we are all going to consume our in, in work, in play, and in general day-to-day life. Um, yeah, the, and there's a million examples. Like even just me walking here from the, the parking centre earlier, I'm on my phone wayfinding 
um, running into people, almost got myself killed, whereas in the future I will have my glasses like this and I'll just have a heads-up display showing me where to go. Mm. That That's one small example. You know, I could give you a million examples of why this technology is purposeful in the future. But the version that they've just released is obviously just for... Um, it's a start. It's, for, it's really for hardcore early adopters and for devs to figure out how we work on the space because it has a battery life of two hours. It's very cumbersome. It's tethered. It's not... But this is product zero. Mm. Five iteration, iterations later and there will be... The prices will come down. There'll be Android competitors and it will be adopted at scale. There is absolutely no doubt. Do you, I know I'm sure everyone has a different opinion, but do you have any idea of the, a timeline? <laughs> no. Not a clue. I'll tell yeah. you what. I'll tell you what. Ten years' time, I yeah. guarantee these glasses that I'm wearing right now will indeed um, be uh, XR glasses. Tech, yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, and the brilliance of that is that I can be as immersive or as present as I want to. Awesome. Uh, so we're coming towards the end. Just two more questions left. Uh, the first is kind of looking at a different technology, artificial intelligence. Uh, all students all know about artificial intelligence. Some students are worried that it's going to take their entry-level job out of the picture. Some students are, are using it to, to... I might have to cut this out, but some students are using it to write their essays for them. <laughs> um, how, how has AI, ChatGPT, how do you think it's going to change... Uh, the workflow for your for, for Zebra, but also just generally, how do you think it's going to change people's workflows to to be faster? And do you think it's going to change also the job, how how people's jobs are structured? Almost, I'm sure they will. But artificial intelligence, you know, like any technology that comes in, artificial intelligence is a tool at the end of the day, and it's what we do with it that is important. Um, a hammer can be used to build a house and a hammer can be used to kill someone. Artificial intelligence, likely the same. Mm. Um, be careful, though, kids, about using it as a, um, as a tool to write essays because uh, it ab- hallucinates and creates false uh, re- if references. So if you ask it to give you... If you give it a topic and say, please provide references, click on those links and sometimes they will be... Um, Personal experience. <laughs> no, from me. Um, this was actually from an or- a very famous author, James Bradley, a friend of mine. He told me and he showed me and I'm like, oh, my God. Wow, but yeah. for us, we do it. Um, we use it for a tool. So we use it in a few ways. We use it as pair programming. So pair co- programming means when you are writing code, often before you deploy code, you need somebody to check your code to make sure that it works, to make sure that it's clean. Um, that takes means then I've got two programmers working on the one um, the the one piece of code. If we use ChatGPT, which we do to now um, to code check, that means that um, my guys are more productive. So we yep. use it in that way. We also use it to we use Midjourney and Dali to develop imagery for pitch decks and concept art. We don't use it in production. Yep. Um, I use it for for tools that I will cross-reference. If I'm trying to do a talk or something, I might, I will definitely use my own resources. I will definitely use my own thinking and my own knowledge. But occasionally I will cross-check with ChatGPT, but I will never use 
um, the string that comes out. Because remember, uh, artificial intelligence is basically based on patterns of words. It doesn't understand what it's saying. It doesn't necessarily make sense all the time. Yep. It basically takes from a database and picks uh, and, and picks up patterns, and that's the way it spews out its results. Awesome. So it's more of a secondary line of creativity? At the moment. Almost. But um, if we look at it, uh, no one, no one human can read an X-ray like artificial intelligence can. Mm. So I suspect that we will see... In industries such as medicine, in industry, well, it's going to affect every industry, absolutely every industry. Um, and I think it, it's transformative and I think it's mostly good, although obviously there are concerns and it needs to be regulated. Um, but at the end of the day, it is another tool and there will be whole jobs created based on being able to tame and program and request information from that tool. Awesome. Uh, and the final question. So the university integrates uh, nine graduate qualities within their learning outcomes. Uh, in your opinion, which two qualities do you consider the most important for a successful career in marketing uh, and why? How can students work on developing these qualities to advance in their own professional journey? A good question. So firstly, despite studying marketing, I've been out of the space for so long that I would not call myself a marketing expert. However, the two the, and all of those qualities are equally important, but I'll choose two that probably most relate to me. The first is critical thinking and problem solving. Uh, the one thing that we can always count on is, is problems. Um, they're always there to solve. Um, and I think being able to have critical thinking and problem solving skills encourage us to question assumptions and evaluate evidence make informed decisions, adapt to changing circumstances, promote effective communication and potentially lead to better judgment and reasoning. Right. Um, the second one, probably the most important, the um, integrated professional ethical and personal identity. Your values are the most important thing. In my career, I've been mostly, to be honest, a bull in a china shop. Um, my kids and my staff will tell you that. It's only been in the last 10 years that I have understood that people are the most important thing. If you find successful people, they will be a people person. Yep. Um, I've always had the values, and values are so important. I've always had three values, and they're the same values that we attribute to our business, and they are innovation, authenticity and delivery. They're my three values. Um, in, e in terms of EQ, I think that's the most important skill you can have. Um, Scott Galloway, who... Do you know Scott Galloway? Yeah, I do, actually. He's the NYU professor, isn't he? Correct, yeah. and he runs the Pivot podcast. He's my absolute idol. Um, if only he were listening. Um, he <laughs> Hello, says, Scott. <laughs> he says, how do you spot an idiot? Look for the person who's cruel. The kindest person in the room is often the smartest. And I think that is excellent advice. Yep. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Simone. Thank uh, you it's for been having me. Very, very uh, awesome advice I think that you've given everyone. Uh, and hope, hopefully you can come on again uh, in, in one of the next podcasts. Happy to. Thank you for having me. Uh, also, did you